Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm joined by the author and journalist Oliver Berkman, whose new book is called 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It. Oliver, welcome. 4,000 Weeks is what you reckon a human lifespan to be, is that so? It's pretty close to the average human lifespan in, in the West. If you lived to be 80, you'll have a few more than 1,000, than 4,000. And if you live to be uh, 90, you get into the 5,000s. And yes, just about. So anyway, yes, this is a human life. It, the point is that it's very short when you express it in weeks uh, rather than uh, the, ab- the absolute number, I think. Yeah. I mean, was this just sort of fact you suddenly lit on and started terrifying your friends with? I mean, what was the way into this book? Yeah, I mean, for the title, certainly, that uh, it, it was a fact I lit on and practically had a panic attack and then started uh, asking other people to tell me off the top of their heads without doing any mental arithmetic how long they thought the average human lifespan was in weeks. And, um, yeah, plenty of people sort of said numbers in five, six figures and were shocked by the truth. I do think, I mean, we can get into this, but I do think that the, the, the sort of reason for this book is something that sort of emerges from my own history as a sort of so-called productivity geek, you know, obsessed with ways of reorganising your schedule and your to-do list and your system of getting things done. And there, I think what's really important is not obviously the length of life, because we can't know what the length of, of anyone's life's going to be, but just this fact that we proceed as if it's limitless when it is in fact very highly limited, that's all. But wouldn't realising your time is short, I mean, my first instinct would be to think, Realising your time is short is, is a thing that would drive you into panic to make even better use of it. But your book, as I'm saying, is, is, you know, you're making a slightly different argument. Yes, that's right. I think there's a risk with this title, which is, you know, it grabs people's attention. It's really been a talking point so far, uh, just in the few days since the book was released. But the, the risk is that you terrify people so much they run away and don't want anything to do with that book. Certainly not to purchase it, which is, uh, which is not the reaction you want. <laughs> if you're publishing a book. But I think that once you get into it, if, you, if my argument works, it is not uh, an argument in favour of sort of this very high-pressure approach of seizing the day where you have to, uh, you know, make sure you're going base jumping every weekend, otherwise you're not really using time in a, in a sufficiently extraordinary way. I find that whole approach to time use basically as tiring as the approach that says you've got to sort of maximize your efficiency in order to get through huge numbers of chores and answer your emails. I I honestly think that when you sort of calibrate your expectations correctly to the truth about the finitude of life, it it can be a sort of a relief. It can be a a cause for kind of relaxing into the human condition rather than, uh, you know, railing perpetually against it. But it feels like it's a book that, I mean, you've done a lot of work as a columnist. You've written about self-help books quite extensively and you've written a book about self-help books but it feels like it's it's coming at that genre slightly slant I mean it's a book that looks like it's self-help book but turns a bit into a book about the meaning of life is that yeah I mean I think that's fair I think that's why I've always been interested in self-help in a sort of good faith way I've certainly enjoyed mocking bad self-help in a journalistic context as well because it's entertaining but yeah I mean I don't think the ancient Greeks or Romans would have distinguished very much between philosophy and self-help. I think, like, what's the point of any of this if we're not trying to find ways to construct more meaningful lives or at least reconcile ourselves to all the aspects of life that uh, are unavoidable? 
So to me, they sort of merge. But yeah, there is a kind of a, I suppose there is a kind of, what's the right word? Not a bait and switch, but there's some, there's some idiom that I can't think of in the sense that I, I suppose I set this book up a little bit as telling you how to use your time well. And I, then I try to slightly undermine the idea that a fixation on using time well is really the best approach for us to but take. You are, as you say, a recoverer from that approach. <laughs> I mean, can you give me a bit of a sense of what being a productivity geek meant and why, why it didn't make you happier? Yeah, I mean, this is very widespread condition, right? I think it afflicts uh, uh, young men above all. And I was certainly younger than I am now when I was sort of in the thick of this. But I think that it's this feeling that, it, and I think it actually goes, it, it, it's more ubiquitous than just that in, in other forms, but the sort of the literature on productivity and getting more done and sort of becoming fully optimized and all the rest of it targets this yearning that I think many of us have in different forms to kind of get, finally get in control of life so that you feel like everything is finally in working order and you're sort of sufficiently capable of dealing with anything that might be thrown at you and you get to feel a kind of security with respect to time both with respect to what you've got to fit into it and that you can feel confident that what's coming in the future is going to go your way we're always trying to sort of get ourselves into this position of mastery and all these books are kind of holding out this hope that it might be possible with the right techniques or the right amount of self-discipline but what you find if you practice this, it serves a very important emotional need, right? Which is the need to sort of avoid confronting the degree to which you don't have control, the degree to which you can't do everything, the degree to which you do have to make tough choices in life. So it serves a very good emotional need, but because it's impossible, because we are actually finite and are not able to get into this position of dominance and mastery over, over time itself, it's always just in the future, right? It's always like, oh, next week, next month. Uh, oh, now I've found this new time management system. It's going to change everything. And I think when you've done that maybe a hundred times with different approaches, even the slowest of us begin to realize that maybe it's not going to work and that maybe there's a problem with the quest as formulated rather than just that you haven't found a solution to it yet. Is that problem that it's a sort of meta quest that you're, you're trying to trying to set about your methods for things and you spend all your time on your methods for things rather than on the things themselves. That's a huge part of it as well, right? The overheads entailed by some of these ways of uh, organising your life. But I guess there that makes me want to say that I don't think, partly because I want to say like this book isn't just for recovering productivity geeks, but I do think that this different manifestations of this desire to feel in control are pretty much universal, right? There's a sort of, I think you could sort of come up with a kind of grand theory of all the different ways that we behave neurotically in one way or another, and it varies wildly from person to person, you know, keeping ourselves busier than we find pleasant or uh, compulsively planning to try to, or worrying in a sort of futile way about how the future is going to unfold. I think they all are versions of this effort to kind of get into the driver's seat with respect to reality and time. Um, and, you know, this is not an original idea. This is a philosophical observation down the ages. But I think it, it, it's something that people are sort of taken aback to, to see is operating in their own lives. And I think it 
is operating in, in most people's lives. So I think you could be operating even in people's lives who are very deeply invested in the idea that they're sort of laid back and spontaneous and don't have anything to do with all this time management nonsense, right? That's another kind of attempt to sort of impose your, your will on events uh, from, the, from the other direction. And so the rest of the book, to some extent, is to climb into the back seat with regard to time. Um, can you <laughs> yeah. talk a bit about how we do this? Because one of the things you do is quite, is you ask, you know, time itself, obviously, is a tricky one. I mean, I interviewed Carlo, Carlo Rovelli for this podcast a couple of years ago. And he's, he said that this, you know, this is a sort of time is essentially a strange manifestation of the second law of thermodynamics, a kind of unfortunate side effect. And that it really isn't real at all in the sense in which we might think it is. I mean, do your do your conclusions accord with with those yeah, most I mean, advanced I, physicists? <laughs> you know, what's time not, anyway? I, yeah, I do not attempt to get into um, the physics of time in this book. That would be a whole other thing, much better done by the people. But yeah, I think part of the whole problem here is that time, and this is even just understanding it on a day to day basis. And a psychological basis, which is my focus, time is just really, really weird and unlike anything else that there is. And thinking of it as a resource soon begins to break down if you sort of focus on it closely. It's like you never really have time in the same way that you might say you had a possession or you had money. You can't put it aside for later. It just doesn't obey any of these kind of rules. And then also... I sort of argue in the book that for huge swathes of history, tons of people, like, for example, early medieval English peasants, would have been so identified with their time that the idea that it was even a separate thing at all would not really have made sense. This is the approach that anthropologists call this a ta uh, task orientation, way that certain societies experience time such that it just, the rhythms of life just unfold from the tasks that you have to do at that time, because... The cows need milking when they need milking and the crops need harvesting when they need harvesting. So we sort of, sort of at least post-industrialization anyway, I think, we, we sort of alienate ourselves from time. We come to see it, we disidentify from it. We see it as this thing that we should then control or try to get the most out of and not waste. But then it doesn't obey any of the, any of the things that we do to it, like we might try to control our physical possessions or our money or something, it doesn't react in the right way because it's just implacable and just keeps passing and you can't know what the next moment of it will hold. So we're in this sort of constant kind of gear slippage situation of trying to exert control over something that, yeah, may not even exist, but even if it does, we certainly can't actually succeed in exerting the control that we, that we want. You say... I mean, the, the picture you paint of the sort of rhythms of time in, say, medieval pre-industrial countryside, you know, the, the fallout there seems to be the Industrial Revolution comes along, we've got, you know, the birth of capitalism mm -hmm. to some extent. I mean, you know, when, when you and I first met, you know, you were a staff writer on The Guardian, so we know you're going to be kind of unsound on this <laughs> stuff anyway, but uh, you, you do seem to be a bit down on capitalism in the book. What... What's the problem with capitalism and its relationship to time? Yeah, I'm a bit down on capitalism in the book. I mean, I think, first as a qualifier, I don't think any of these changes in, in mentality all happen at one point. I think you can definitely see signs of 
modern sense of time in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, for example. So then it sort of vanishes in large swathes of sort of ordinary life subsequent to that. But it's not like it all just comes along with the Industrial Revolution. I, I, I think if I was going to sort of make, make my capitalism scepticism at least a little bit interesting and not like straight down the line of the kind you might expect, I, don't, I think the, the problem that I try to sort of outline in the book is the way that, you know, it's one of the major forces that pushes us in the direction of instrumentalizing our time, right? Seeing our time as valuable primarily or even exclusively for the purposes of something in the future. So really it's the instrumentalization that capitalism embodies. And I think you can see capitalism in a sense as a sort of giant machine for instrumentalizing everything it comes into contact with, right? Raw materials, so-called human resources, right? It's like everything and time above all, maybe, for the creation of future profit. But, but it's, not, it's not actually the fact that it's for profit that is the problem here in my, in my take. It's the fact that it's for something else in the future to such an extent that it becomes extremely hard to, to find value in life in the present because we are sort of guided by every external force towards making the most use of, best use of it for something in the future. I don't want to ramble on, but I think one really good illustration of this is this idea of the billable hour that lawyers, that sort of dominates the lives of lawyers. And I write about the work of a Catholic legal scholar called Kathleen Cavaney, who's sort of explored the way that if you're completely embodied in, the, if you're completely sort of embedded in this mindset whereby time is something to be sold off in chunks to the client. I mean, firstly, it leads to this problem that corporate lawyers are not incentivized to do stuff as quickly as possible because they actually want to bill more more uh, hours to the to the client but also it it sort of shifts your sense of the value of time so that if it can't if a if an activity can't be um counted as a billable hour it becomes hard to appreciate that it's worth doing even if that thing is like you know going and seeing your kids dance performance or football match right it's not just that lawyers might be very very busy but that they've some of them anyway come to value time in a way that is totally future-oriented, which might explain why even sort of extremely well-paid people working in corporate law, I don't mean to single them out completely, but I'm sure there's some people listening, but are often extremely wealthy and not very happy because the value of life is sort of, is consistently and chronically postponed. I think you quote, quote Dan Markowitz's meritocracy trap to this effect, which is... Right, yeah, even the people who... The absolute winners of our society are kind of kind of lose because it's because of the pre- the pressure of time. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, you have in in it also, which I'd, I'd love you to retell because you'll do it better than me. It's a little parable of the businessman coming across a Mexican fisherman. <laughs> I, the story, it's yeah, it's so remarkable. I mean, I, I very deliberately framed that story as like you all know this story, but this is why I want to bring it up for this specific message, and quite a few people extremely well-informed people and have uh, all responded like they never heard the story. So I'm very happy to um, <laughs> to tell it as if completely fresh and new. This is this, I think you just have to read too many kind of crappy time management books to come across it as many times as I had come across it. But it's always used a bit disingenuously in those, in those contexts. This is a story, the sort of parable of the New York businessman who's on vacation in Mexico, where he gets chatting to a Mexican fisherman who tells him that the way he spends his day is he like fishes for a few hours just to get enough to, to get by on and spends the rest of the day 
drinking wine and playing music in the sun with his friends. And the New York businessman locked into the mindset of productivity and time management is really bothered by this. He says, look, if you, if you worked a bit harder, if you really, really invested time and effort and money in your, in your business, you could buy a whole fleet of fishing ships. You could, you could, you could have far more throughput of your, of your um, business. You could become a kind of millionaire of the fishing industry here. And then you could retire early. And the Mexican businessman, the Mexican fisherman says, well, what would I do then? He said, well, then you could just relax. You could spend the day drinking wine in the sun and playing music with your friends. So I don't know that I told it particularly well just then, but the point being that uh, this, this instrumentalization for the future is, is extremely, there's a problem with it if you, if you could, in fact, find happiness in the present. Yeah. So it's, not, so it's a book not telling us so much how to, how to use our time as how to take a different attitude to it. I loved what somebody said, which was that it's, yeah, it's, about, it's maybe about how to experience time differently. And that, of course, requires me to say that I have not figured this out perfectly myself. I don't think that's the point of a, of a good, uh, as hopefully this is, a good, a good sort of book exploring this kind of issue. But yeah, I think it's about, it's a, it's a perspective shift that I have sort of figured out and somewhat undergone and that, you know, I'd like to point out to other people, which doesn't necessarily lead to any change in how you are using your time. Although I think for many people, you know, once it was internalised a bit, it might. Well, you ask us to, um, in the most friendly way I've seen Heidegger introduced into the pages of a popular book ever, I think. <laughs> to take on board a bit of Heidegger and, and um, see ourselves as, you know, beings towards death, which I do quite a lot and it scares the willies out of me. Um, <laughs> it's, is, is there a way of not doing so or do, doing so in a way that's, that's going to make you feel less anxious about extinction? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I do think that, I mean, this isn't a book about death and dying and I didn't think I was equipped to write that. It's about the consequence of death, the finish, in other words, the fact that life is finite rather than, rather than about the end itself. And I think, you know, to the extent that anyone understands Heidegger, to the extent that I understand Heidegger, I don't think the claim is made um, that, that the anxiety all goes away. To some extent, it's a sort of transforming of the anxiety from the kind of anxiety that's involved in trying to avoid the truth into the kind of anxiety that comes from, from facing up a little bit to the, to the truth. And so I, I do think there's something about that that is that can be bracing, right? Which is, it doesn't mean that the anxiety goes away, but there's a, a sense of, uh, there's a sense of sort of authenticity to that way of living. And I'm talking on a very sort of low level day-to-day -day thing. I'm not talking about sort of staring your mortality in the face in some sort of big melodramatic fashion. I really just mean, if you can see that uh, there will always be too much to do and you can sort of let go of this fantasy you have of getting to the very end of your to-do list once and for all. If you can see that every time you're choosing to do something meaningful for an hour or two of your life, you're, you're by definition having to let go of two or three other, maybe a thousand other ways you could have meaningfully spent it. If you can sort of ease into that discomfort, which doesn't require a sort of operatic confrontation with like mortality it's just a question of confronting that sort of day-to-day -day discomfort 
there's a huge payoff, I think. Yeah, I think you're the, 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 what you get in exchange for that discomfort is to sort of let go of an illusion that is comforting in the moment, but that sort of accreting over months and years is, is really sort of depressing and, and sort of removes meaning from life, which is this idea that you're en route to some moment of truth later when life is really going to start and um and that what you're doing now is just a sort of dress rehearsal does that make sense i hope so <laughs> yeah also there's another point you take from heidegger which seems to kind of be germane to this is the idea that we don't have time and we're not in right. time but we are time i mean that's what i t again i do put a big caveat in this book about how nobody should trust me or anyone on what heidegger means because he is so frequently impenetrable and that's before we even get to the being a Nazi stuff about Heidegger, which we should bracket for now. Right, well, it's easy to understand, but it's like, does it, what's not easy to understand is whether that should, should cause one to reject outright anything he has to say about some other topic. Um, yeah, we're very against cancel culture here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, me too. I would maybe make an exception for paid up members of the Nazi party in the 1930s. But anyway, moving on. I think that the, the idea, he, he, his masterwork's called Being in Time. And I think that, the idea that it's just a very interesting idea to play with that there isn't, a, it's not easy to draw a bright distinction between the idea of existing and the idea of existing specifically in time, that our sort of position of being thrown into the river of time before we've even asked any questions about how we should spend our lives, already in time, already being born forward towards the end of our time, unable to get out and sit on the riverbank and catch our breath you know there's something very fundamental about that and it's sort of it's at least so fundamental that something is wrong about talking about how you might use your time as you might talk about how you might use your money or how you might use some possessions that you have in your in your house it's too fundamental to who we are to ask that question in that way um, and that this has certain implications for you know how you go about trying to live in time. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I find immensely charming about your book is that you're quite honest about <clears throat> the difficulty of saying, I'm not going to take a futuristic attitude to time. You know, I'm not going to instrumentalize it. I'm going to sort of savor it as it passes and realize that this moment is all we have. I and mean, I think you say, you say something like, you know, it makes it even harder to be in the moment when you're trying actively to be in the moment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I talk about seeing the Northern Lights in the Arctic Circle and in the, trying so hard to enjoy them that you sort of didn't and, and, and having the thought that they look like a, um, one of those old screensavers on PCs where the sort of the green lines sort of uh, float around the screen. And it's such, such a terrible thought to have about one of the natural wonders of the, of the world, that they look like a Microsoft screensaver. But again, yeah, right. If you're, it's a different kind of instrumentalizing time, right? To sort of furrow your brow and decide that you're going to be really present in the moment and smell the roses and, um, and be kind of absolutely one with things in this way, which is, I think it's unfortunately and inadvertently encouraged by a lot of sort of, contemporary mindfulness meditation culture but so for me the the way through that or past that is more to just sort of it starts with more of an intellectual understanding which is that 
you obviously always are in the moment anyway. This is not um, a choice that any of us have. If you're completely lost in thought of worries for the future, that is happening now in the future, uh, in the present too. And so, you know, this idea that you could be not in the moment or in the moment and you should get better at being in it rather than not in it is sort of totally premised on a, on a mistake. And when I let that thought sort of seep into me a bit more, I think you do become a bit more naturally aware of your surroundings and less worried about the future because again there's this I keep coming back to this through the book but there's this basic shape this sort of basic psychological gesture I suppose that I find really liberating which is that when you see that something that's making you miserable is is making you miserable because you are trying to do something that is just structurally logically in principle impossible it's a lot easier to give up that, that struggle at that point, right? Once you see that a particular way of trying to relate to time or get into control of time or be able to do everything is just, it's just systematically, mathematically out of reach. Well, then it's like, you know, nobody beats themselves up for not being able to jump a mile in the air because we don't expect it of humans in the first place. So I don't know. I think that's, I think that's quite a relieving thought. And they, yes, I mean, there's... <laughs> I think it's captured in Carl Hyacinth's novel, he's an obituarist. And every time he has a birthday, he, he figures out who was dead at that age. Right. And he right. finds himself comparing himself to, oh, shit, you know, I passed Elvis. You know, what have I achieved by this? And so forth. Um, <laughs> but you, you talk also, I mean, there's some, something in order to get into the moment. There's a sort of hair-raising but kind of intriguing thing. This guy, I think he's called Steve Young, who becomes a Buddhist monk. Yeah. And it begins with him just dousing himself in icy water. <laughs> which doesn't, And yet he comes to a sort of revelation through this. How is that? Right, yes. <clears throat> I mean, he's much better known now by the name Shinzen Young, and he's a, he's a really leading American teacher of meditation. And he writes about this early phase of his training where the monastery that he wanted to join required him to go and sort of live in the mountains in Japan on his own. And three times a day, in what they called a purification ritual, to dump um, ice cold water from a cistern over his naked body. And, uh, and then it's sort of like ridiculous agony. This wasn't like just revenge for the war. <laughs> no, and he's, um, and so he's, he's really sort of he, he obviously does what I think any of us would do in that situation, other than stop the process and, and decline to douse yourself with, with freezing cold water, which is, which is in the moment of the, the most suffering, when the cold water is hitting you, sort of try and think about something else, to try and sort of mentally absent yourself from the situation. And what he actually discovers and writes about and spoke to me about is that over a period of weeks of doing this, you, you gradually begin to understand that actually if, you, if you're going to keep dumping cold water over yourself, but you want it to hurt the least, focusing on the sensations more intensely is the way to do that. Being in the present more intensely. The way someone else, another meditation teacher friend of mine puts it is like, basically, your attentional bandwidth is limited. And if you can fill it up with the sensations that you're experiencing in a given moment, like there's kind of basically less left over to moan and whine about how you wish those things weren't happening. And the unpleasantness or the worst unpleasantness is in the wishing 
that it would what wasn't happening or feeling that it shouldn't be happening or that there must be a way out of it and you haven't found it as opposed to the the sensations themselves and i just sort of use this as a way to talk about how you know how we sort of willingly try to distract ourselves all the time away away from things that feel difficult or uncomfortable or unpleasant even just like you know work that challenges us or conversations with a spouse that are necessary but leave us feeling vulnerable or whatever we're so ready to kind of switch over and scroll through our phones because it feels more comfortable but it's actually that desperate desire to get out of the situation that really is a big part of why the situation sucks so much and at the beginning of the book i quote um the american buddhist teacher charlotte jocko beck saying you know about life in general i think what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured which I just love. I feel like that basic idea, you know, that you're going to have lots of problems, but you don't need to treat the fact that you have problems as a problem in itself and thus never quite be present because you're always sort of scurrying forward to the imaginary place where you don't have any problems. Often clockwise. It's not the despair I can't stand, it's the hope. (laughs) Right, right, yes. (laughs) Now, I mean, one brave stunt you do in the book yourself, which to me sounds no less terrifying than the cold water experiment is something I I think it's an art history teacher recommends to you which is sitting in front of a single painting for three hours (laughs) and just looking at it yeah I mean this is many I mean brings many of us just the thought of it out in highs what was your experience yes yes no well this is fascinating to me I mean again like I I was about to pick you up on the uh, jovial suggestion that this was brave, but on the other hand, it was kind of gruelling. Jennifer Roberts, who's an art historian at Harvard, sort of make, requires all her incoming students to do this exercise because her argument is that the culture that we live in, both technolo- for technological reasons and at Harvard, you know, for the competitive atmosphere, everything moves so fast and everyone is wired to move so fast that she felt it was her responsibility as a teacher to do something that would slow the students down so that they could actually see paintings instead of just briefly look at them. And what's amazing about this process, if you do it, is that, like, yeah, you spend the first hour in a state of high discomfort, wriggling around, convincing yourself you chose a terrible painting to look at, should have chosen a moment that was more interesting, what am I doing here, la, la, la. But then you do really start to see things that you absolutely would not have seen in the painting. It's really striking how maybe it wouldn't be so pronounced for someone who was less bad at looking at art than than I am. But this was a totally, totally discernible feeling of like noticing things happening with the lines on the painting that I was looking at that suggested sort of hidden spaces that I hadn't noticed or things about the expressions on people's faces that seemed to tell whole stories that I would never have seen if I'd merely glanced. And I think the point that generalises beyond, you know, art appreciation is just that all sorts of things in life, they, they sort of have their own tempo. I think reading is a really great example of this. I think, you know, lots of people complain that they don't have time to read and what they really mean is that when they sit down to read, the mental flywheel is sort of turning too fast to move at the speed that a good novel, say, requires. And that it's not just a kind of passive form of surrender to sort of slow down to the speed of reality, that actually if you can resist the urge to try to make it go at your desired speed, 
there's a form of control in that. There's a form of power and influence, right? It's a sort of, a, I joke in the book, that it's sort of a superpower. It's really a bit unpleasant and uncomfortable at first. But if you can sort of resist the urge to hurry, you can actually find yourself understanding more about things, making more progress on difficult work, etc., 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 because you didn't totally give in to this feeling that things ought to all happen instantaneously. Do you think that, I mean, not necessarily to go back to your 14th century peasants, but that some of these artefacts, I mean, works of art, for instance, or, you know, even obvious one is this 19th century novel, were tooled for a, you know, a community which had a different way of digesting time or had a you know, longer attention span, just crudely. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> no, I think they I think they really were. And I think also it's not that things, as I say in the book, uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's that things moved more slowly back then. I think it's that the idea of things moving slowly would have not made sense to the average person, right? It would, the idea that there was some regular tempo against which reality itself was, was dragging is sort of really weird, right? Because where, where, does, where does that come from other than from reality itself? <clears throat> and I think also, you know, you see, I mean, it's a slightly different point, but, but you see sort of things that would have taken so long to create that the idea of waiting to have them realised within your own, expecting to see them realised within your own lifespan would have been, would have made no sense. You know, I come from York. I always think about the stonemasons building York Minster at some point in its history where it was still hundreds of years from being completed. Obviously, they would have been spurred on by a sense of religious meaning in what they were doing. But like that, that takes a different attitude to time to find that work meaningful and to have no possibility of being alive for the opening ceremony. You know, do you think secularism does change our relation to time kind of irrevocably? Because, as you say, you know, not only would medieval people have had, lived in different you know, economic and social rhythms, you know, they also did have the sense that they were on the kind of, you know, what do you call the the the, the, the departure lounge or the, you know, yeah, wherever yeah, we yeah. were here was just a, a sort of little front skirt to yes. the real the real deal. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I'm an, I'm not clear myself on how on how far sort of eternal life has been understood as a sort of extension of the timeline. Uh, as opposed to various other interpretations of it at different points in in history. I don't think that's necessarily the only way to think about eternal life. But there was a really interesting a, a review of my book just yesterday that I read by from a, uh, a theologian from a Christian perspective, which is sort of very complimentary in all sorts of ways, but basically says, you know, this book would be absolutely spot on if we really were mere mortals. But because I, the writer of it, am a, am a Christian, I, that's, not what I, that's not what I think. And therefore, you know, so it comes down to, you know, I think what the, the, sort, of, the sort of dynamic that I'm talking about here, about trying to become a sort of little God over your time, right? Trying to be um, omnipotent in a way that sort of belongs only to God. It does make a difference whether you think the reason that we shouldn't try to be gods of our time is just because that's impossible or whether you think it's because that job is already taken <laughs> as it were right yes. and somebody else uh, and and some other uh, entity already is the god of our time and i think it it comes to a 
crescendo, I suppose, in the part of the book where I'm talking about how kind of insignificant we are in the, in the scale of the cosmos and how actually this is a sort of a source of liberation too, because first of all, it's wonderful not to feel like every decision you make has incredibly high stakes because actually the whole of human civilization is a blink of an eye in the, in the lifetime, lifespan of the universe. Elizabeth Bishop used to say she found it comforting to think, think about geological time. Hmm. You know, she'd just I, say her own troubles and bothers seemed very small. I, I, think that, I think that's really, really true, right? You know, don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. But, but also that, you know, it might invite us to adjust our definition of a meaningful life, right? Because I think especially now in the, the kind of celebrity culture that we live in, among other things, there's this idea that to spend your life meaningfully means to spend it extraordinarily, to do something that lives on down the ages, that really redirects the course of human events. And I quote this philosopher, Ido Landau, who's written a lovely stuff on the idea of, you know, what happens if you can lower the bar for what counts as a meaningful life instead, and to see that all sorts of things you do on a daily basis, cooking meals for your family or writing something that delights a handful of people, you know, there's no reason why these shouldn't be meaningful just because they are not going to echo down the eons. But then just to close the loop, yeah, if you believe in the Christian God as I understand that belief, you're not insignificant because God is capable of t taking what you do to be extremely and ultimately and fully meaningful. So it would, it would certainly change a lot of the conclusions, I think, yeah. Having achieved, achieved your, your semi-enlightenment, I don't want to credit you with full enlightenment, do you still feel guilty about wasting your time? I mean, I, you know, I, I spend dozens of hours playing World of Warcraft, and I'm aware that this is literally a complete waste of time, but it gives me great pleasure. What, should I be castigating myself? Should you feel bad about wasting time? I mean, I don't think you should feel bad about wasting time. I, I, the question that um, it brings up for me is like, what counts as wasting time? And I think one of the things that I do try to explore in the book is this notion that the sort of the degree to which we have instrumentalized time as a society means that we've come to think that anything that doesn't serve a future purpose is automatically a waste which is terrible because it sort of then means that in order to enjoy the moment in any way, you have to waste time in a sense. You have to, you have to engage in idleness if we're going to de define idleness as something that doesn't have most of its value situated in the future rather than now. So I think the question would be, I'm so not a video games person um, and I'm always amazed and fascinated when people of my approximate generation are I find that really fascinating so I don't know so I can't I feel I feel like I know I feel like I can't say you know there are that could be a hobby that brings you into the moment of and gives you great pleasure in what you're doing or it could be a distraction that you run away to when there are things that you know count more for that time but they're sort of uncomfortable and uh, it feels more fun to go off into a into another dimension so it would totally count, depend on Totally depend on what your what spirit you're doing it in. I think. <laughs> well, I, I we have to say time's up. Um, <laughs> unusually poignant in this context. But um, Olive Burtman, thank you very much indeed for spending forty minutes or so of your four thousand weeks talking to me. Um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, for me too. Thanks very much, Sam.
You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.